Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John uh, chapter 2. I've been preaching through the book of 1 John over the last couple of months. And we were there last week, albeit it was online only. But I want to finish 1 John chapter 2 and actually move into chapter 3. Most of you are aware of the fact that the influence of a father, whether it be good or whether it be for the bad, the influence of a father is a powerful thing. I read a story about a young man who was standing before a judge one day and was about to be sentenced to prison. And the judge was an older man. He had known this fellow since this fellow was a boy. He had been well acquainted with the young man's dad, who was a famous legal scholar and had been the author of an extensive work, very well-known work in the field of legal studies. So as the young man is standing before the judge, the judge asked him this question, do you remember your father? To which came the reply, I remember him quite well. And trying to probe the young man's conscience, the judge then asked this question to him, as you're about to be sentenced and you think of your dad, what do you remember most clearly about him? To which there was a pause and the judge then received an answer that he wasn't expecting. The young man said, I remember when I went to him for advice, he looked up at me from a book that he was reading and said, go away, boy, I'm busy. Then I remember when I went to him for companionship, he turned me away saying, some other time, son, I have important things to do. Your Honor, you may remember him as a great lawyer, but I remember him as an unconcerned father. And the judge thought to himself, well, that man may have accomplished great things, but he lost the boy. Now, I wonder how many times that scenario has played out in our society. The same story, but just different players. You know, there really is no substitute for the love of a parent. Around a decade ago, there was a journal article that was published in the field of social psychology that researched the power of parental rejection, the power of acceptance, and how it really shapes our personalities as children and on into adulthood. But Ronald Rayner of the University of Connecticut was co-author of the study. He said this, in our half century of international research, we've not found any other class of experience that has a strong and consistent effect on personality and personality development, as does the experience of rejection, especially by parents in childhood. And those researchers found that in response to rejection by their parents, children tend to feel more anxious. They tend to feel more insecure, as well as demonstrate more hostile and aggressive behavior toward other people in their lives. So in other words, without the love of a father, or without the love of a mother, without the love of a parent, there's a strong likelihood that children will act out. Now, you keep that in mind as we come to these verses uh, here in 1 John chapter 2. I really want to look at verse 28 uh, through the third chapter, verse 3. 
And one of the things that we keep seeing in our study of 1 John is this constant repetition of certain words and phrases by the Apostle John. Uh, 1 John is made up of five chapters, 2,134 words, and yet there are only 303 vocabulary words that he uses, which means that John often reuses the same words, and he repeats himself for the sake of emphasis. Some of his favorite words are these, love, it's a word he uses 45 times. The word know, this is a word he uses 37 times. Abide, he uses this word 22 times. Life, he uses that word 17 times. And then the word children is a word that he uses 14 times, three of which are going to be found in the series of verses that we're going to look at here in just a moment. So really here at chapter 20, uh, in chapter 2, verse 28, there's a new section that begins in which the Apostle John describes the unique relationship that believers have with God. And he uses the word born. It's a word that's not been used by him up until this point, but really from verse 29 through the end of the letter, he's going to use this word no less than nine times. And that word born is a very important word because it reveals the fact that children, that believers are children of God who've been born of God. We have a heavenly father as believers. And he's not an absentee, unconcerned father, but he's a father who's very much aware of the hurts in our lives. He's a father who's very much concerned and involved in the minute details of our lives. So let's begin reading here at verse 28, and then we'll read through to chapter 3, verse 3. The apostle writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want to speak from this subject this morning, children of God. Children of God. Now really within the span of just a few short verses, the Apostle John scales the majestic mountain peak of God's grace. And what begins in verse 28 with just a simple command to abide in Christ leads to a word of reassurance so that we can have confidence in Christ. And then in verse 1, we stop for a scenic view and we take in the wonder of the Father's love by which he's adopted us into the family of God as believers, and he calls us his own children. From there, John will take us all the way to the summit of glory where he reminds us of the promise that one day in the future we will one day be like Christ when we see him as he truly is. 
The apostle then brings us back down the other side of the mountain as he concludes with a very practical reminder of the purifying purpose that this hope that we have in Jesus Christ, this promise that we have that we're the children of God, this is intended to have a very practical impact on our lives here in the present. Now, you'll notice there in verse 28 that John, uh, once more, is addressing his readers as little children. And again, that's one more way in which he communicates the depth of his love and his pastoral concern. Uh, He's used this expression several times, at least four times in chapter 2. Up until this point here in the letter, uh, John has encouraged his spiritual children to remain in Christ, to find fullness of joy in the fellowship that they have with the Father and the Son. And so he's called on them to walk in the light of God, to cling to Christ. They needed to live in the confidence that their sins had been forgiven uh, so as they'll not be seduced by the world and all that the world claims to offer. And we spent a couple of weeks in verses 18 through 27 where John calls on his readers to beware of those who went out from the fellowship were spreading lies, false teaching, denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so now in these verses, he's really explaining in a clear way for us what it means to be the children of God. Uh, How is there a difference in us as believers versus those who do not know God? What are some hallmarks, some distinguishing traits of God's children according to what the Apostle John says? Well, notice there are at least three things here that I want you to consider. Number one, notice with me our confident expectation as the children of God. As God's children, we live with confident expectation. And he's calling on his readers here in verse 28 to abide in Christ as they live in the hope of Christ's coming. In other words, what they know about the future is to impact the way that they presently live their lives which means that there's immense practical benefit uh, in looking forward to the Lord's return. In other words, you think about the second coming of Jesus, this should not be something that sends us into the clouds of speculation, but rather it should send us onto the pavement of daily discipleship. It ought to impact the way that we live as God's people. That's what John wants his readers to understand here because he's referring to the Lord's coming at least four times in these verses. Notice that he uses this phrase, when he appears. There in verse 28, also in verse number two. And so perhaps a question that we should ask ourselves is this, how should the truth of Christ's appearing impact the way that I'm presently living as a child of God? And John says that the number one way that we live in view of the Lord's return, it's through abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. It's a word that he uses multiple times. It's one of his favorite words. And and the word that he uses here in verse 28 for abide, it's a present imperative, which simply means it's a word of command that's calling for immediate and consistent action. Abiding in Christ means that you recognize your union with Christ and you remain in close communion with Christ. And so notice the result of this abiding. Uh, John goes on in verse 28 and says that it's so that we'll have confidence whenever Christ appears. 
So children of God live with confidence and they don't live with the fear of shame when Christ comes again. This is something that's characteristic of God's children. We're looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And it's this future confidence at the return of Christ. John connects with present abiding in Christ. In other words, the practical byproduct of abiding in Jesus Christ is that I keep my house in order. It means that there's to be a sense of readiness and anticipation that we live with as the children of God, as if Christ could appear at any moment. In fact, this is something that Jesus emphasized quite a bit throughout the Gospels. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35, he said, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open immediately. Now listen to this. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find them watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down and eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or the third watch of the night and find them waiting, blessed are those servants. And then Jesus says, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there's this sense in which an an acute awareness that Christ's return is imminent. This is something that is essential for a spiritually healthy and vibrant church. You show me a dead, lifeless church. You show me a church where the mission of God has been ignored and the Great Commission has been put on the back burner and I'll show you a church that really isn't ready for Jesus to come again, that hasn't really been living in the light of Christ's imminent return. And so John is saying that as the children of God, there's a very practical benefit that the return of Jesus Christ, the promise that he's coming, the imminence of his return, his immediate appearing in glory one of these days, this keeps us from falling into a stupor of infatuation with the world around us. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, knowing the time that now it's high time to wake up out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So the point is, with the day of Christ's return at hand, sober living ought to be true of God's children. That's what John is saying here. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. So maybe the question to ask is, to whom exactly is John referring when he speaks of those who will shrink back in shame when Christ appears? Is he referring to believers who are not in fellowship with the Lord, who squandered the time and the resources and the opportunities that they've been entrusted with? Well, it very well could be that there's an application there. Uh, Paul deals with this same issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he talks about those whose works will be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. Believers, genuine believers, but they squander the resources that they were entrusted with. I think a a fitting question that we can personalize and ask ourselves personally is this question. If Jesus were to suddenly appear, would you be confident or would you have reason to be ashamed? 
could be that there are some issues that need to be addressed in your life as a believer. It could be that there are some fences that need to be mended. It could be there's some habits that need to be forsaken, some actions in your life practically that need to be taken. So the children of God who are abiding in Jesus Christ will not shrink from him in shame when he comes. And that's what John is saying there in verse 28. And yet, I believe that there's an application here. He could be referring to those who aren't saved when the Lord returns. Jesus speaks of this in Mark chapter 8 when he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory with all of his holy angels. One thing I know for sure, those who are not right with the Lord, who are not in fellowship with the Lord, have reason for shame when the Lord appears in glory. But those who are abiding in Christ, those who are cultivating a relationship with Christ, those who are walking with God through faith in Jesus Christ, John says they have no reason for shame, but they can live with confident expectation in the Lord's return. So you'll notice then that this the result of abiding is confidence. And then you get into verse 29, and John is talking about righteous living. That word if in verse 29 uh, could be translated since. The idea is since a person knows Christ is righteous, it logically follows that the person who practices his same righteousness has been born of him. So John's tracing the fruit of righteousness back to the root of the new birth. Where there's righteous living, this is the evidence or sign that there's been a genuine conversion take place on the inside of a man or a woman. It's, it's token evidence that one is a son or daughter of God, children of God. There's been a transformation. And so the righteousness then that's being described here, this is imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's given to your account as a believer. It's not uh, achieved righteousness, but received righteousness. It's the working out of what God has worked in in the life of his child. If you know he's righteous, you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Danny Aiken says it this way, the new birth precedes new behavior. Being born of God has abiding results. That phrase, has been born there. This is a perfect tense verb, which means that children of God will grow to look like God their father. And so our practice then is proof of our parentage. So this confident expectation, this is a characteristic of God's people. Now, notice a second thing that's true of God's children, not just their confident expectation, but notice their intimate association. John describes the intimacy that children have with God who is their father. Having been born again, he's their father. So he's continuing this thought as you get into chapter 3 when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Now that word see doesn't convey the sense of wonder and awe with which the apostle is writing here. Older translations use the word behold. And the idea is there's just this sense of awe and amazement that John is calling his readers to. He's saying... Take just a minute, stop what you're doing, 
meditate on the fact, hold in all the fact that God has so loved you that he calls you his child. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. It's a statement of amazement. It's intended to provoke worship in the heart. So believers are in relationship with God, and this is all by means of God's grace. How has it come about? Well, notice a couple of things. Uh, We've been born of Him. Born of Him. Look at that last phrase there in verse 29. Again, John's tracing the fruit of righteousness in the believer's life to the root of the new birth, which he then begins to describe in this third chapter. Adoption into the family of God. This comes through the second birth. How does a person become a Christian? Listen to me. You become a Christian by joining the church. You become a Christian by passing through the waters of baptism. Do you become a Christian by signing up some kind of card or attending some kind of confirmation class? All those things are helpful, well, and good. But the way you become a Christian and are adopted into the family of God is through the work of regeneration by the Spirit of God. Unless a man is born again, Jesus said he will not see the kingdom of heaven. There has to be a new birth. There has to be a spiritual transformation take place within. Divine life has to be imparted where there is nothing but spiritual death. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. Here you had a religious man, a Pharisee who was proud of his achievements. He came from a a proud pedigree, but he knew that there was something missing in his life. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, literally born from above, there must be spiritual birth take place. Someone says, how does that spiritual birth take place? It's by the activity of God. But one thing I know for sure is it's a gift that's received through faith alone in Jesus Christ. If you're someone who desperately wants transformation, if you're someone who desperately wants to be born again, listen to me. Repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So this is what John's referring to in verse 29 by this phrase, born of him. The same thing he mentions in his gospel uh, in John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. (laughs) So you're not a child of God by means of your first birth. You're, You're a child of God by means of your second birth. Just because you grew up in a Christian home doesn't make you a child of God. Just because you live in a Christian nation doesn't make you a child of God. There has to be a second birth. There has to be a genuine transformation whereby the Holy Spirit imparts the divine life of God. But as many as received Christ, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John says, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, so children of God are born of him, and then John goes on and says, children of God, they belong to him. That's what he's saying here in verse 1. Not only have I been born of God's spirit, but I belong to him, and I've been given a name. This is what John is getting at when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. 
In fact, the language that he uses here, uh, see what kind of love, what manner of love. It's the same word used in Matthew 8, 27, where the disciples were in awe of the lordship of Jesus when he spoke to the wind and he spoke to the waves and said, peace, be still. And, and, and the, the scripture says that they, they were in awe and they were amazed. What manner of man is this, that even the wind and waves obey him? This is a man unlike any other man. This is the God-man. This is a man from heaven. It's the same word that John is using here when he says, see, behold, what manner of love, what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is not the love of the world. This is not the world's definition of love. This is divine love. This is grace that's being described. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. Now listen, that we should be called the children of God. That's your identity as a believer. You want to know who you are and why you exist? John is telling you right there, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given a name. You belong to God. He's put his stamp on your life. The Holy Spirit's the seal of your redemption who's come to live within you. You belong to him. If you're in Christ, you belong to him. God looks at you and says, there's my son, there's my daughter. There's my child. You live with a cloud of regret over your head, always feeling like you are trying to earn someone's approval that you never got. What John says right here, give you all the approval you'll ever need. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Wow. So the children of God are born of him. They belong to him. They behave like him. Again, go back up to verse 29 where John is talking about practical righteousness, righteous living. Before the ethical commands of Scripture, before you'll ever find those ethical commands given in the New Testament, what you'll find is doctrine. What you'll find is a reminder of who you are and what you've been given in Christ. And on the basis of who you are and what you've been given in Christ, then there's a call to obey. There's a call to follow. There's a call to submit. As you work out in the power of God's Spirit what God's Spirit has worked in. Isn't it amazing that the older your children get, the more they look like you, the more they think like you, the more they act like you? <laughs> and it's a little bit of, it's kind of a scary thing. I mean, you really begin to see so much of yourself reproduced in the lives of your kids. There are certain things about me that I most certainly don't want to see replicated in their lives. One honest man in the bunch. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, our biological children share our DNA. They resemble us. They share our personality traits. Due to proximity, they pick up on our priorities and our lifestyle habits. In a very real sense, our children become like us. 
And John is saying the same thing applies spiritually. We become like our Father because we've been given His divine life. And what is sanctification but the Spirit's work in your life as a believer, as a child of God, whereby God is molding you, shaping you, conforming you to the image of Jesus. And He'll use the experiences of your life, the hurts, the pains, the disappointments, the griefs, the relationships, the circumstances of your life, all of that are tools in our Heavenly Father's hand whereby we are conformed to the image and likeness of His Son. So as a child of God who's been born of Him, who belongs to Him, behaves like Him because I've received His nature, what then is the ultimate goal of my life? Well, it's that I become like Him. And that's what John is getting at here. It's sort of this parenthesis. He says in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. The word appeared there means manifested. It's not yet been revealed in all of its wonderful detail. But one thing I know, John says this, we know that when He appears, that is Christ, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So the children of God, they live with this sense of confident expectation. They live in intimate association with God as their Father. But see, here John's talking about our ultimate motivation as the children of God. And all of these are positive statements that John is making. He's not saying that we're at a disadvantage now simply because what we will one day be has not yet appeared. I'm waiting for that day. I long for that day. But it does not mean that I am somehow less than God's child now. Because listen, I will be no more of a child of God on that day than I already am right now. Now to be sure, on that day there'll be no more fallen humanity for me to contend with. Sin nature will be gone. I'll be given a resurrection body. Every day that I live, I'm reminded of the frail and fallen part of me that is waiting for future redemption. But I have this promise that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And what does that involve? I know what I will be one day. John says I'm going to be like him when he appears. That's the plan. That's the purpose. That's the goal. That's the priority that God has in mind for your life. And there's mystery here. There's marvel in this. It's not yet been revealed, John says, but the promise is there. And this promise is to be a great incentive as I face the challenges of life in a fallen world comprised of a fallen world system inhabited by fallen people. John is saying here, as Christians, we're the children of God living in the midst of a world that doesn't know us. That's what he says there in verse 1. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it doesn't know Him. Why is it that the children of God face such hardship in the world? It's because the world doesn't know us. This fallen world system is under the direction and influence of our enemy, the devil. That's why Jesus said that His followers could anticipate hardship and suffering and trial and persecution and disappointment 
But he said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. So John's saying, don't let all that disturb you. Don't estimate yourselves in terms of what the world says about you because the world doesn't know anything about what you've been given and who you are. The world didn't know Christ when he came. The world doesn't know God now. So when it makes a mockery of your faith, when it ridicules you, it only serves to confirm who you are and that what you have is real. Which, by the way, I think sometimes we get disillusioned because we expect ethical behavior from a world that doesn't know God. You're setting yourself up for frustration when you expect the world to act like the church. But when you realize the world's going to be the world, you'll be able to breathe and realize, okay, it's God who does the changing. It's God who does the straightening out. He's changed me from the inside out. And the commands of Scripture that are given, the ethical commands of Scripture, God's given to His children who've been changed from the inside out. What does the world need? The world needs the life of God. That's what the world needs. And so that's why it can free you up to be able to interact with people who don't know God with compassion, with understanding, with grace. When they mistreat you, when they make a mockery of what you believe, you don't have to return insult for insult. But you can show grace and you can show compassion and you can shine the light of Jesus because that's what the sons and daughters of God do in a darkened world. But what John is saying here, man, I'm telling you, this ought to just bring you some hope if you found yourself discouraged with life of late. And I think maybe one of the main reasons for so much melancholy we deal with in life as believers is that we fail to recognize the truth in verses such as these. And we're not careful we get to a point where the promises of the Bible become nothing more to us than just printed words on a page that we're vaguely familiar with. But if you stop and you meditate on what John is saying here with this great reminder of who we are and what we have in Christ, listen, it will bring blessing to the depths of your soul. You ought to take a highlighter or take a pen and write my destiny above these verses. Verse 2 in particular, beloved, we are God's children now. And when all the feelings and the emotions and the hurts of life tell you something different, you can speak with confidence into those situations. No, I know that I'm a child of God now, no matter how I feel, no matter what the world is saying, no matter what's going on in my life. I know that through Jesus Christ, I'm a child of God now. But he's not done with me. He's still working on me. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but ah, know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we're going to see him as he is. God is the ultimate finisher. He never starts something and quits. He's not like us. Oftentimes we start things and then we get fatigued and we get frustrated and we get burned out. 
disillusioned. No, listen, God is the ultimate finisher. When he begins a work, he always sees that work through to completion. And when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, when you were born again into the family of God, when by God's grace you became a child of God, God began a good work in you. And he's going to see that work through to completion at the day of Christ's appearing. And what's that going to involve? Well, one day the darkness and fog of life will soon be lifted. The night will soon be over. One morning we're going to wake up in the kingdom of God and all of our sorrows will be no more. There will be no more news informing us of who died in a drive-by shooting in the night. No more cancer treatments. No more children dying from malnutrition or neglect. The rebellion of man will be a distant memory. The evil, the pain, the injustice of a fallen world will all find its answer when the king returns. And this is the hope, beloved, that the church, the children of God, live with. And it's intended to put a spring in your step, to melt the ice of doubt and uncertainty in your life, to warm your heart, to liberate your mind, to serve as a cure to the doldrums of life and all of your anxiety and all of your anxious thoughts. And John says that this hope, everyone who has this hope in him, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. That word hope is a very important word. We think of hope, we tend to associate it with wishful thinking. No guarantee that the thing that we hope for will ever materialize. But that's not the word that John uses there in verse 3 for hope. You see, earthly hope, temporal hope, that carries with it this element of uncertainty. But the word that John uses there in verse 3 is a word that speaks of certainty. A deeply settled confidence. An assurance, a confident expectation that is based upon the promise of God. You know, your hope is really no better than the object of your hope. And what is the object of our hope as the children of God? John says, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, this hope that we have that when Christ appears, we're going to see him as he is and we're going to be made like him in every way. Listen to me. This is intended to have a purifying practical impact on how I live my life in the here and now, which tells me this is very practical. There's a guy by the name of Brian Kelly. He lived in Detroit, Michigan, and he underwent major surgery July of 1994. And something went terribly wrong in the surgery, and the doctors told him that he was not going to live. So he gathered his family together around his bedside, and he gave them specific instructions for his body after death. It just so happened that it was the dream of his life. He had worked at a fireworks factory all of his adult life. He was infatuated with fireworks, so he instructed his family to have his body cremated, and his ashes were to be rolled up into a 12-inch fireworks shell. Larry Wright, I don't know if you're looking for a new way of business, but take notes. But on the night of August 12, 1994, 
at a pyrotechnics convention. A blast was heard which sent that shell into the night sky. It went up with two silver streaks. It burst, and for a grand total of four seconds, there were green and red splashes of light all against the backdrop of the night sky, intermingled with the ashes of Brian Kelly. Four seconds of glory, and the show was over. You know that without Jesus Christ, without you being born into the family of God and knowing that you have God as your heavenly Father, no matter how long or how short a life you live, no matter what you try to make of yourself in this life, without Christ, a few seconds of glory, and then the show is over. And that's all the world knows. That's all the world can know. That's why the world lives for the here and now, because the world has no concept of what John is describing here. But, beloved, we have future hope. And you know what Daniel says? Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, I believe it is. It says that the righteous children of God will shine like stars forever and ever. And that's the promise that we've been given in Jesus. You stand with me for prayer this morning. Folks, we've got hope. I mean deep and abiding hope as the children of God. Confident expectation. By means of God's grace, we've been brought into an intimate association with God as our Father. Born of Him. We belong to Him. He's given us His Spirit to empower our obedience so that we behave like Him. And ultimately, He wants us to become like Him. That's the goal that God has in mind for your life as His child. And all of that, all of that is intended to be an ultimate motivation in my life. What are you living for? Rather, who are you living for? Because if you have this hope, John says it's going to be evident through abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you have never been born again, and you say, Pastor, I so desperately long for what you've been preaching about today. I want the life of God in me. I want to know that God is my Father. I want to be saved. And listen to me, right there where you are in an attitude of repentance and faith, turn from sin and turn from self and place all of your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross, who rose again from the dead. And the scripture says, whoever confesses him as Lord, believes in one's heart that God has raised him from the dead, will be saved. We have some pastors here would love to pray with you. You want to come talk to us about baptism or church membership or this morning you've prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, come let us know. We want to celebrate with you. You can tell us now, even after the service, you can come up to one of us. There is no greater amazement and wonder than knowing that you are a child of God. Lord, thank you for these precious promises that through Jesus Christ, we are children of God. 
And God, we have a hope that the world doesn't know and the world can't possess. Because this is a deep, settled, abiding confidence that comes only through being rightly related to God through faith in God's Son. And Lord, whenever life exerts its pressures on us, when we truly feel like we're in the fire, when we hurt, when we ache, as we get older, as we experience disappointment and pain and frustration, Lord, may we be reminded of this precious hope that we have. And it is sure, just as sure as the promises of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.